0: What's up guys welcome to breaking walls episode number 66 my name is james scully as you can hear from the sound things are different tonight we're ushering in the month of october with a study in fear tonight on breaking walls we have an interactive history of radio's outstanding theater of thrills suspense if this is your first time hearing breaking walls thanks a lot you can find this podcast by searching for breaking walls on Stitcher, TuneIn, and iTunes, and by following at The Wallbreakers on SoundCloud. To check out our line of New York City Unity t shirts, please go to jamesthewallbreakercom shop. These are typographic t shirts that use the slang names of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst New Yorkers, near and far. And We The Wallbreakers, we're on all social media outlets at The Wallbreakers, and we're on the web at TheWallbreakers.com. On the evening of June 17, 1942, a new kind of radio program premiered on CBS. Hosted by The Man in Black... It offered the listener high-anxiety drama designed to weave the audience through twists and turns of fate. In black. The Columbia Here Broadcasting System Columbia's called program. it Suspense.
1: Suspense. Our star tonight is one of the most compelling actresses in America today, Miss Agnes Moorhead. Miss Moorhead returns to our stage to appear in a new study in terror by Lucille Fletcher called Sorry, Wrong Number. This story of a woman who accidentally overheard a conversation with death and who strove frantically to prevent murder from claiming an innocent victim is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with Sorry, Wrong Number and the performance of Agnes Moorhead, we again hope to keep you in
2: Suspense.
3: Your call, please. Operator, I've been dialing Murray Hill 70093 now for the last three quarters of an hour, and the line is always busy. I don't see how it could be busy that long. Will you try it for me, please? I'll be glad to try that number for you. One moment, please. I don't see how it could be busy all this time. It's my husband's office. He's working late tonight, and I'm all alone here in the house. My health is very poor, and I've been feeling so nervous all day. Ringing Murray Hill 70093. (sighs) Hello, hello. Is is Mr. Stevenson there?
4: Hello, 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 George. Yes, yeah, sir. This is George speaking. Hello,
3: who's this? What number am I calling, please?
4: I'm here
5: with our client.
4: Oh God, is everything okay? Is the coast clear for tonight?
5: Yes, yeah, George. He says the coast is clear for tonight.
4: <laughs> okay, okay. Where are you now? In a phone boat. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Very well.
5: You know the address.
4: Yeah, yeah, I know. At 11 o'clock, the private patrolman goes around to the bar on 2nd Avenue for a beer.
5: That's right, at 11 o'clock.
4: I will make sure that all the lights downstairs are out.
5: There should be only one light visible from the street.
4: Yeah, yeah, I know. At 11.15, a train crosses the bridge. Make the noise in case her window is open and she should scream. Oh
3: hello, what number is this, please?
4: Okay, I understand, I tell you. That's eleven fifteen the train. Yeah.
5: Do you remember everything else, George?
4: Yeah, yeah, I make it quick. As little blood as possible. <sighs> because our oh, client does not wish to make her suffer long.
5: That's <laughs> right. You'll use a knife?
4: Yes, yeah, so a knife will be okay. And afterwards, I removed the rings and the bracelets and the jewelry in the bureau drawer because our oh, client wishes it to look like simple robbery. Don't worry, everything's okay. I never... Ma-
3: oh, oh, how awful, how unspeakably awful. Oh. And the operator. Oh. Your call, please. Operator, I've just been cut off. sorry. What number were you calling? Why, it was supposed to be Murray Hill 70093, but it wasn't. Some wires must have got crossed I was cut into a wrong number, and I've just heard the most dreadful thing, something about a a murder. And, operator, you simply have to retrace that call at once. I beg your pardon. (laughs) May I help you? Oh, I know it was a wrong number, and I had no business listening, but these two men, they were cold-blooded fiends. They were going to murder somebody, some poor innocent woman who was all alone in a house near a bridge, and we've got to stop them. We've got to... Uh, What number were you calling, Well, that doesn't matter. This was the wrong number, and you dialed it for me, and we've got to find out what it was immediately. What number did you call? Oh, why are you so stupid? What time is it? Uh, Do you mean to tell me you can't find out what that number was just now? I'll connect you with the chief officer Oh, I think it's perfectly shameful Now, look, look, it was obviously a case of some little slip of the finger I, I told you to try Murray Hill 70093 for me You dialed it, but your finger must have slipped And I was connected with some other number And I could hear them, but they couldn't hear me Now, I, I simply failed to see why you couldn't make that same mistake again on purpose Why you couldn't try to dial Murray Hill 70093 in the same sort of careless way Murray Hill 70093 Yes yeah. I'll try to get it for you Oh, thank you I'm sorry, Murray Hill 70093 is busy. I'll call you in Operator! Minutes. Operator! Operator!
0: A month later, in July, iconic producer William Spear joined the production. Here is Spear in 1970 talking about his involvement in the show.
6: I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V A N D A, a very wonderful producer and great old friend in California, and it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, forecast which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 uh, weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find, but we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a a testing ground, a, a pilot, it would be called today, a ground for new shows, one of which was suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern, and uh, many shows, several shows were sold and, and went on into uh, getting well-known in, in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and Ace uh, Rider Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic, how will it come out, can she get away by midnight, people, rather than the clanking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror, or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. I was very proud of was that suspense was able to corral the really distinguished actors from both sides of the country. Uh, and while I was in Hollywood, we had people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and uh, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and everyone, I can't think of hardly anyone, of uh, note very few anyway who were not a part of it i never showed anyone in my life i have never given a script to anyone for approval uh, i don't believe in it they would do it because they were able to play things that they couldn't play any other any other way jimmy yeah. stewart would be a, a a murderer or jack benny mm-hmm. a murderer mm-hmm. or edward g robinson would be totally innocent or uh, boris karloff would turn out to be completely wronged or peter laurie and there was, wasn't this was not always true, but there was the chance always for that variation in their lives, which hadn't existed before.
0: Bolstered by a talented crew of radio actors with Broadway cachet like Agnes Moorhead and Orson Welles, six months after Suspense premiered, the production moved from New York to Hollywood. At the time, radio had three major locations. There was New York, there was Chicago, and there was Hollywood. Here's character actor Hans Connery talking about the differences in the shows that were produced in those cities.
7: Primarily was California yeah. euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. <laughs> uh, indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio, were primarily of a documentary sense, and very often a more literate sense, and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center. Uh, because the, uh, the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's
4: and interesting. That's
7: exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsor's wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist uh, were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, uh, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers, were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their their glamour. And since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, uh, there was a, a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our motion movie star, step into your living room. And the phrase was born and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors Now the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday, able actors who played part after part after part.
0: In December of 1943, Suspense moved to a new time slot, Thursdays at 8 p.m., for its first major sponsor, Roma Wines. The new time slot and added budgets had Hollywood's best looking to be a part of the weekly productions. That year, Carrie Grant was actually quoted as saying, If I ever do any more radio work, I'd like to do it on suspense, because that's where I get a good chance to act. Oh,
4: David! She's outside!
3: there! Something
8: hit
0: the back
5: of the car! It's her!
0: Is the door locked on your side? Yes,
3: yes. What, what if she breaks the windows? She's got a cleaver.
9: In that flash of lightning!
3: I saw somebody! Is it
9: the crazy woman? I can't tell.
5: She's lying on the road.
2: Can you see her? Is she still there?
5: too dark to see. have to wait for the lightning. I
0: saw her! She's getting up now! She'll kill
4: us!
3: She'll kill us! Oh no! Please!
0: (laughs) And the reason that Cary Grant wanted to work so badly on suspense? Producer William Spear, who took a hands-on approach to every episode. He molded everything from the sound effects, to the story voice, to the music, into a 30-minute session of Peabody award-winning art. Spear was always quick to give credit to other members of his crew. The dream was
6: written by Bernard Herman. who uh, was a wonderful composer and a great, great guy, and the husband, at the time anyway, of Lucille Fletcher, who wrote Sorry, Wrong Number, and uh, many of the shows that we did that were uh, superior, superior things. No, that was part of Charlie Vander's original show, too. I invented and now the Roma phrase, a tale R-O-M-A well calculated M-A, to keep you in suspense. Roma
7: Wines
1: presents Suspense.
6: And there again, the <gasps> one and only Lud who conducted, and his wonderful composers, Lucian Marowick and Bernard Herrmann and others, were greatly responsible for the impact of those shows, creating of a, of a spell of loneliness or of awe or of majesty or of what, because the narrative principle was so much in use in a show That's like Suspense. R-O-M-A.
8: Roma Wine. Those better tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than. This any is the other opening wine. to the
0: December 5th, 1946 episode the called done. The House in Cypress and Canyon. Right now, Audiences then and now consider it to be one of the most terrifying radio plays ever heard. Metro Goldwyn Mayer's undercurrent in a remarkable tale
1: of. Suspense! Suspense.
8: Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? (laughs) Kind of early with your greeting, aren't you,
9: Sam? Well, I
8: gotta get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas.
9: If this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. (laughs) I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, You'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. You sound like it's serious. That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you, you know we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm-hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All I got in were the foundations, just mm-hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. Well, what do you want? Police protection from the mob? Yeah. Listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago... Well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a... a what do you call it? A, a manuscript in it. A story, kind of. All written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, and I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. Well, what's funny about it? Well, well Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon, house that was only just started building. All so, right. Well, listen, Sam. I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. Oh, I shoot. <clears throat> well, here's how it begins. Uh, to whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. What follows here
10: will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. First, let me say that I'm a very ordinary person. My name is James A. Woods. I'm 35 years old. By profession, a chemical engineer. My wife, Ellen, was a schoolteacher when I met and married her in Indiana seven years ago. There's nothing in the past life of either one of us to suggest remotely any cause or reason for the dreadful thing that has invaded our lives. Our married life has been in no way different from that of millions of other average, reasonably happy, and congenial families. Three months ago... I was ordered by my firm to take charge of a rather minor project in Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood to be exact. The order was a sudden one. There'd been no time to secure accommodations, and conditions being what they are, the inevitable result was that until day before yesterday, we'd been living in the cramped quarters of one of those characteristic California motels. Needless to say, most of our spare time had been devoted to a search for something more permanent and comfortable, but... The fruits of these efforts had been, financially and in every other way, a geometrical progression of discouragement. Until last Saturday afternoon, only four days before Christmas. We were driving into town on our way to a movie when Ellen saw it.
2: Jim, look! What? That sign in front of that real estate office. Oh, yeah, But uh, Don't you see what it says? For rent, furnished, two-bedroom house, close in, immediate occupancy. Yeah,
10: uh uh-huh.
2: Aren't you going to stop?
10: Oh, Ellen, you know a sign like that. It'd mean right out in plain sight in front of a real estate office. Oh, yeah, but Jim. Either they want $600 a month. We'll never
2: know until we ask. Well, if it's any
10: good at all, there are probably 50 people fighting for it right back there now.
2: Well, honey, there's no harm in trying now, is there? You really want to go back? Oh, it's probably foolish, but what can we lose? Oh, darling, come on, cheer up. How do you know? Maybe our luck's changed. Maybe fate's gonna give us a nice new house for a Christmas present.
10: Sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. And, oh, yeah, uh, I hung it outside just this minute.
2: Is, is the house available?
10: Why, sure, sure it is. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How to do? Wow, looks like it's fixing to rain. Yes, so it does, doesn't it? Well, it was one of those things. The real estate agent had just been authorized to rent the place by mail that morning, and he'd hardly had time to look at it himself and put up his sign when we drove up. It was just an ordinary little California house about halfway up Cypress Canyon, number 2256, just an ordinary, undistinguished little house. The agent didn't know much about it. Construction on it had been stopped by the war, and it had just been completed and furnished lately. been vacant while somebody's estate was being settled, and... Now it is owned by a bank in Sacramento. Of course, we didn't.
9: We didn't got care this about key in the mail along with the authorization to rent. Only one there is. Of course, you can have duplicates made. Yeah, seems to stick a little. Oh, no, there it is.
2: <laughs> Doesn't sound as though that door had ever been opened.
9: Well, a little oil on the hinges will fix that, all
2: right. Oh, sure.
9: Now, now here's your living room. Furniture's a little dusty, of course. You've got to expect that. It's good furniture, though, you see? Benson Brothers. Yes, uh-huh. Now, over here's a little den. Panel, you see? Radio, fireplace. Really a very attractive little room, particularly for a man. Uh-huh, yep. Now, the, the bedroom's off the living room here. Everything's all on one floor, you understand?
2: Uh-huh.
9: It's uh, quite nice, I think. Yes, uh-huh. You can see you get the morning sun here. There's a view of the canyon through these front windows. You got cross ventilation.
10: That's about all there was to it. It wasn't the best place in the world. It was small and badly built, but what would you have done? We took it with as little inspection as that. It was the Saturday before Christmas. And the very same evening we were struggling up the steps from the road with suitcases and boxes and armloads of clothes and all the endless bric-a-brac that people collect and never know they have until they move. And Ellen began unpacking and I began moving things around and taking the worst of the pictures off the wall, doing all the little things that everybody does when they move into a new place and try to give it something of
2: their don't own Don't be such a sour puss. <laughs> you know, it's a roof over our heads for Christmas. That's more than we ever thought we'd get, isn't it? Now, what in the world are we gonna do with those two pictures?
10: Why don't we just leave them where they are?
2: Jim, we can't. They're too awful.
10: Well, all right, put them in the closet, then.
2: I can't. Both the closets are jammed full.
10: No, I mean the other one in the little alcove off the den. At least there's a door there. I suppose it's a closet.
2: Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that isn't a commentary on the housing problem, huh? A woman moving into a house without even knowing where all the closets are. Take the pictures down, will you, honey? Bring them in here.
10: Okay, okay.
2: Oh, I guess you'll have to help me with this door. I can't get it open.
10: Let me see it. Well, of course you can, not silly. It's locked. Where are those keys we found on the desk? Mm. Here they are. Uh, nope. Not this one. I'm sure, this one won't work. Nope. Feels like an awful solid door for a closet. Oh,
2: and that's one solid door in the house.
10: No, nope, this one won't do it either. Well, we'll. Just have to get a locksmith up here on Monday. I'll put the pictures behind the desk, okay?
2: Yeah, yeah, all right. Jim, if you could just help me move this armchair, huh? Oh,
10: Ellen, will you let it go until tomorrow? You know what time it is? Oh,
2: but, honey, I'd like to get the place looking just a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but it's bit.
10: almost midnight. In fact, it's it's exactly...
2: <gasps> what was that?
10: Tomcat, I guess, in the brush somewhere.
2: Sounded near. <laughs> Hope that doesn't go on all night. Well,
10: there's much we can do about it. Come on. I'm dead tired.
2: All right, Jim, all right.
10: Where'd you put the toothpaste, honey?
2: It's right in the medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. Jim, we ought to get some firewood tomorrow. You know, a fire in that living room would make all the difference they in the world.
10: can't. Sunday.
2: Well, Monday, then. Jim, I think red curtains are what we need, don't you? Mm-hmm,
5: mm.
2: You know, just at least for the living room. Anyway, the ones in there now have just got to come down.
10: Yeah, I suppose they do.
2: What do you think of red? Well, I guess it's all...
10: Jim. That's some tomcat.
2: Jim, it it sounded in the house.
10: How could it be in the house, Ellen? We've been over every inch of the house.
2: Except closet.
10: How could a cat or anything else be in the closet that's been locked up for over a year?
2: I don't know. It's... Mm
10: probably under the house, a wildcat or mountain lion or something. I hear they have them in California.
2: Jim, I don't like it. Well, neither
10: do I like it, but there's nothing we can do about it tonight. Well,
2: maybe we ought to call somebody, the police or some neighbor. Oh, don't be silly,
10: Ellen. You act like a kid. Come on, let's go to bed, huh?
2: all right. I suppose it is silly. Jimmy, did you lock the door?
10: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Can I turn out the lights now?
2: Yeah. All right.
10: Good night, Ellen. Sleep tight.
2: Good night, Jim.
10: I don't know what time it was Perhaps an hour Perhaps only a half hour later My mind was in that hazy borderland Between sleep and a dream That's still part of consciousness Then I was awake Ah! Ellen Are you all right? Yes Did you have a nightmare or something?
2: No I heard it too
10: Well, that didn't sound like any cat
2: Put on the light Yeah It seemed to be out there, Jim, in the house somewhere.
10: I'm going to look into this. Jim,
2: you be careful. Come on. Where's where's my shotgun? In the den, I think... Jim! What? There. There's something wet. What? Wet? Running from under the closet door. Sticky.
10: Uh, Ellen, don't. Don't touch it.
2: I had to. Jim... It's blood.
1: For Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon. Roma Wines presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense.
8: Between the acts of suspense, this is...
0: When William Spear was interviewed by Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for the Golden Age of Radio in November of 1970, he brought with him his wife, June Havoc, herself a famous actress who appeared on Suspense. She spoke about why she loved radio so much and what made it so powerful back at the time of the Golden Age of Radio when American households had radios and not televisions.
11: I remember that I used to have a radio set in every room. And I would tune in on my days when I was allowed to be home, not at the studio, on my favorite programs and go from room to room doing whatever I had to accomplish. And I never left those people. And I used my imagination. They were in my mind's eye. And my mind's eye was sufficient <laughs> for me at the time. It created wonderful vistas for me, which, of course, television limits me. I must see them. I must see what they're doing, and I must see it their way. I love television, uh, for other reasons, to watch.
10: Well, you know, the, the feeling that, uh,
7: <coughs> that I have about radio is that when, when television came in, Bill, people thought it was simply another dimension of radio, and suspense was one of the first shows to make the transition to television, I'm sure you recall. But it really wasn't. It was a separate medium, and so was radio. Radio was unique, and radio,
6: as we're talking about it tonight, is gone. Now, how do you feel about that? Is someone at fault? That's a very, very tough one. I don't know. I suppose it comes down to a, a criticism of, of networks, or uh, networks certainly had to make a choice there. You can't be both listening to the radio and looking at the television, and I suppose they put their money on uh, the chips of, uh, of television at the time. I, I've always wondered why it had to be, but I, I guess that's it. There's just so many hours back in the day.
1: To the Hollywood stage. Robert Taylor as James A. Woods, with Kathy Lewis as his wife Ellen, in the house in Cypress Canyon. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense!
10: It cannot be too difficult to understand from the foregoing why I've taken the pains to set down in writing the events related here. To find in one's newly rented house a closet which cannot be opened is in itself certainly no great cause for alarm. But to be awakened in the stillness of the night by unearthly cries within that house, to find oozing from under that closet door something that is unquestionably blood, that's another matter. Perhaps others might have been braver than we. Suffice it only to say that we got out of the house in something very close to a panic, only returned when we had the moral support of two stalwart Los Angeles policemen. You uh, just moved in here, you say? That's right, officer. You can, you can see we're still unpacking. And the place has been empty right along before that. Yeah, I, I don't know much about that part of it. You could check all that with the real estate agent, though. Well, uh, <clears throat> where
5: is this closet?
2: Oh, it's it's right in here, officer. And and the blood the blood is.
5: Where? Where's the blood?
2: Jim.
10: Officer, I, I swear to you, there was blood on the floor less than an hour ago. I I saw it. Uh huh. It was running out from under that door. We heard that noise, and we got up, and then we saw it. The, the door was locked.
12: Locked, huh? Oh,
2: no, I...
12: Well, it seems to be all right now.
1: Hey, uh, you folks aren't trying to be funny, are you?
2: Is...
6: isn't there anything in it?
12: No, ma'am, there is not.
10: Look, officer, we're reputable people. You can call my firm, they'll tell you all about me.
6: There's nothing wrong with this closet. Walls are
12: solid, no trap doors. If you think I'm lying... You... I didn't say that, Mr. Oh, you probably did hear some sort of a noise, and you got a little panicky, and, What, uh, what
2: about the blood? It, it got on my hand.
12: It isn't there now, is it? Yes. Where? I, I feel it. <laughs> now, you folks just take it easy. You know, you're liable to hear all kinds of noises up in these canyons at night. You're uh, from the east, you say? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, officer. Ah, oh, that's all right, that's all right. If you have any real trouble call on us anytime. All right. Well, good night. Good night. Good night. Hey. <laughs> you ought to have this door fixed. That's enough to scare you.
10: Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have it fixed. We didn't say much about it after that. There wasn't much that could be said. The next day I went down to a lot and bought a little Christmas tree and some trimmings and we tried to pretend we were cheerful, but there was an uneasiness between us that had never been there before. Ellen seemed tired and listless. Several times during the day I noticed her washing her hands with a a brush, scrubbing the one that had touched the blood. That night we each took a sleeping pill and went to bed.
11: In those days... As a star, film actress at the time, what I would do when I did a radio show was you would appear and it would all be very posh and your agent would be standing by and you'd have a special microphone of your very own and then you'd have um, uh, all sorts of marvelous treatment and the really marvelous radio actors would be way over there surrounding one microphone. (laughs) And I did that, you know, whenever one did a radio show and then eventually, when I got to know Bill, well enough to be asked out and asked for dinner, he was doing Suspense and Sam Spade and he'd say, why don't you sit in the booth with me and when I'm through doing the show, we'll go and dine. So I sat in the booth long enough to envy those actors. He's a wonderful, wonderful, marvelous director. And so I asked him one night, Very, I batted my eyelashes and asked him if he would let me be one of the anonymous actors, because they didn't get billing. They're just marvelous. They're all stars today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, they did accept me, but it was pretty rough. The producer-director girl sitting in there taking a job from somebody when she didn't need it, you know, and she... But it worked, and I learned a great deal. And I played toothless old hags and Chinese people, and I played myself twice. I was twins once. I murdered myself. It was very difficult. It was a challenge. I stepped backwards in a panic, but that mob, that 5 o'clock mob, poured in behind me and shoved and pulled me with it. I'd been pushed around all day, and I... I had this awful cold. I hated everybody. That's a terrible thing to say, I guess, but that's the way I felt, like committing murder.
7: We have never had this opportunity on the program to ask a stage star and a motion picture star how she adapted to, to radio. Was it difficult for you at first?
11: Yes, it's an entirely different medium. And I originated, as you know, probably on the stage. And uh, when I first did my first film acting, I was in a, I, in fact, I wasn't really, I've never been very good at it. It's not my medium. And then television is even more difficult. That's not my medium either. I prefer the stage, and you know, it's very simple, isn't it, to hear me say that. Radio was the closest Sometime to what I really loved.
10: I was suddenly wide awake and staring into the darkness. In some way, I I knew at once and instinctively what had awakened me. Ellen was not in her bed nor in the room. The nameless thing I feared gripped at my heart until I could scarcely breathe. I opened the bedroom door and started through the house, putting on every light that I could find. There was not much to search, but I searched thoroughly. The, The living room, the kitchen, bathroom, den, even the garage. And all the time, the dread of looking where I knew at last I must look. For I think I knew from the very first time where I'd find her. It must have been a full minute that I stood before that closet door. Then, I opened it. She stood there rigid, her arms at her sides, the fingers extended like claws. Her hair was over her face, her eyes stared out of it. Her lips were drawn back in a grin like an animal at bay. For a moment, I was frozen with the horror of it. I stretched out my hand. Very deliberately, she turned her head and sunk her teeth until they met into the flesh of my forearm. I'd raised my hand to strike at her, but already she'd relaxed her hold and gone utterly limp. She would have fallen unless I'd caught her. I carried her into the bedroom and laid her on the bed. Strangely, at that moment, my only thought was how I might revive her. Until I saw that it was it was not a faint, but a sleep that she'd fallen into Sleep as deep and heavy as though she'd been drugged. And so I left her. But for me, that night, there was no sleep. Jim? Yes, Ellen? Oh,
2: oh. what are you doing up so?
10: Oh, I, I got a little restless. I'd make some coffee.
2: Oh, oh! I had the most wonderful sleep, and I feel so rested. Do you? Mm-hmm. Jim. What? What's the matter with your arm?
10: Oh, I I just hurt it. Well,
2: honey, it's it's terribly swollen. Let me see it. No, it, it's all right, Ellen. Oh, it isn't all right. You've got to see Dr. Wesley right away. Sure, I, I will. No, I now, will. you promised me, Jim, that you'll go the first thing this morning. How'd it happen?
10: Why, oh, uh, th- th- there was a dog. A dog? Yeah, I, I heard him trying to chew through the screen door. I went out to chase him away, and he bit me.
2: Well, you mean there, there's all that racket, and I didn't even wake up?
13: No, Ellen, you, you didn't even wake up. To me, acting is kind of dull, and and so I wanted to go and do the other things. And Bill Speer, who was producing and directing suspense, and was to my mind probably the greatest of. Well, you Dick and I all. both agree the greatest guy we ever met in this business. Yeah, really just a wonderful guy. Marvelous, and and Bill. I I wrote scripts for him, and then he had me editing scripts all this while I was acting, and then... You um, are
0: hearing the voice of Elliot Lewis. He was the director who replaced William Spear as of August thirty first, 1950. Lewis was also an accomplished actor and writer, and he was the husband of Kathy Lewis, who played Ellen in The House in Cypress Canyon. The Howard and Sam he's referring to are Howard Duff, Duffy, the actor, books, and Sam Spade, and the, the character he played. Duff, by the way, had a crossover appearance as Sam, the private detective, listening to the story man, to told by the real estate agent TV in the house in Cypress Canyon. That real estate agent was played said, by Hans Conrad, Conrad, thus proving how much of a tight-knit group these radio actors and directors all were. We got were. very
13: close. We had a good relationship. And he wasn't well for a while, and he asked if I would produce and direct suspense for him, and I did some. Then he had to go to Europe to do a picture with June, uh, his widow, and uh, the Masons, James and Pamela, were married at that time. And Pamela had written a book and uh, done the adaptation, and James and June were going to co-star, and Bill was going to produce and direct it. And that meant that he'd have to give up suspense, and he, in a very dramatic scene, handed me the torch and said, you go do this, I'm going to do pictures, and I said, fine, off you go.
6: And I found Howard Duff who had played numerous parts and you know, in the cast of Suspense and other shows that I did.
13: And he said, and also take care of Howard and Sam Spade for me while I'm gone.
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
13: I did quite a, quite a few of those, as I remember, once I, uh, once
8: I got to know Bill. And, uh, you know, he was kind of like that. If he mm-hmm. liked you, you worked. You know, you know they, they weren't really paying me that much to, so that I should just specialize on Spade, so I
10: had to do other things. But when, I, when we readjusted my contract... <laughs> yeah, you to to scale. It is now Christmas Eve or rather Christmas morning, for it's a little after midnight. I've been waiting here, here in the stillness of this empty house for nearly 24 hours, waiting for the end. Already once tonight, I've heard that dreadful wailing cry somewhere in the hills. I've nailed up the closet door, but that I I know was childish and useless. My arm is horribly swollen and turning black, but that's nothing It's another end that I foresee, as surely as other men foresee the rising of the sun. I hear the cry again. It's nearer now. I shall leave these notes in a sealed envelope and put it in a shoebox, in the hope that someone will give credence to these dark and terrible events, if, indeed, such nameless horrors can ever yield to mortal understanding. As for myself, I feel no longer any fear or even sorrow. Only a desire that the end and the thing that I must do may come soon. And it will be soon, I know. Yes. But there is someone at the
4: door.
9: Someone at the door. Well, what do you make of it, Sam? <laughs> What a yarn. But what of it? That's what I thought. Now, listen, that's not quite all of it. Huh? Clip to it's a newspaper clip. Listen. Hollywood, December the 26th. Police reported what was apparently a case of murder and suicide in Cypress Canyon... sometime in the early hours of the morning. The victims were James A. Woods, a chemical engineer, and his wife, Ellen... Preliminary investigation indicates that Mrs. Woods was killed by the blast of a shotgun in the hands of her husband, who then turned the weapon upon himself. That she fought desperately for her life, however, was evidenced by the disorder of the room and the severe lacerations inflicted upon her husband about the neck and arms. This is the second tragedy to be reported in Cypress Canyon within 24 hours, the other being the unexplained death of Frank Polanski, a milkman.
8: Well, no such murders or whatever they were ever occurred, if that's what's worrying you. The clipping, well, you have those things printed
9: up, you know. No, no, it's not that, Sam. That story was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. No number, no nothing, just a framework. Uh-huh. Now that house is finished. When I drove by it today, but well, that's what stopped me, Sam, because it all fits. Now that it's finished, it is the house in the story, the same construction, the same vines and creepers on the lawn, even the same number. So what? A guy who knows roughly
8: what this house is going to be like writes a yarn and loses it or something. Did he know the place was going to be listed for
9: rental today, the Saturday before Christmas?
8: (laughs) Oh, Jerry, coincidence. Two you find the guy next door is a ghost story writer or something, and he's been wondering for a year what happened to that thing he wrote. Okay. Okay, coincidence. Well, I, I'm sorry I bothered you, Sam. <laughs> Don't be silly. I liked it. It's a good yarn. Uh, that the for uh, rent sign you were talking about?
9: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put it up outside now. Uh huh. Well, so long, Jerry, and Merry Christmas again. No, well, thanks, Sam. <laughs> I guess I was kind of silly, all right, huh?
8: <laughs> Listen, when a guy named, uh, whatever it is, Woods, with a wife named Ellen, comes in to rent that place from you, then you can start worrying. <laughs> yeah.
9: Well, so long, Sam. So long, Sherry. Come in.
10: Oh, we're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside.
9: Well, yeah, I hung it out just this minute.
2: Is is the house available?
10: Oh, sure, sure it is. Well, let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How do
9: Wow! Looks like it's fixing to. Re...
10: Yes, it does, doesn't it?
6: Very good show, I recall. It was... The House in Cypress Canyon was written by Robert L. Richards, fine writer, who, by the way, I first met at the March of Time. He was one of the editors from Time magazine then, and he came out to the coast and got into this. That was a show that was a little different from most of the ones we did. The notion was that you can't tell where you begin and if what has happened is a figment of the man's imagination or not, because the things all fall into place, and just when you think, aha, that's it, it starts over again and seems to be going around in a circle its
7: uh, ...irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season, and it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium, television. If they had tried to, uh, hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see, but on that occasion, the tele- the radio industry t- had only to turn to its sponsors and said, "We have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now." So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors, very understandingly, nodded the head and bought the new product, uh, those actors of us who had been made our uh, living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television, and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor. It was said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to, yes, surely. You had to destroy. That's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the the well one, in order to make to make chicken soup for the sick. <laughs> <set. laughs>
5: Suspense, presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Peter Lawford. Here are the results of the great $100,000 Autolite family charity drawing. Over 5,200,000 entries were received for this event.
0: Hans Conried mentioned that radio died in the fall of 1953. What he means is that the 1953 54 season was the last in which NBC, CBS, and ABC radio shows had widespread sponsorship and large budgets. After that, the three major networks pulled funding as they transitioned to television. The last suspense show to feature major sponsorship was on June 7, 1954. These people and
5: 20 others who will each designate $1,000 to their favorite charities have all been notified. And now this is Harlow Wilcox wishing you a summer of safe driving with the reminder that wherever you travel, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. Next Tuesday night, June 15th, we will continue with a new series of suspense programs. At that time and through the summer, we hope that you will join us and that we will be able each Tuesday night to keep you in suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis with music composed by Lucian Morawick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. A Terribly Strange Bed was adapted for suspense by Morton Fine and David Friedkin from the story by Wilkie Collins. In tonight's story, Ben Wright was heard as Gerald, Paula Winslow as Mildred, Joseph Kearns as Fabian, and Vic Perrin as the croupier. Peter Lawford may currently be seen co-starring in the Columbia picture, It Should Happen to You. And remember, suspense continues on Tuesday nights beginning next week, at which time we will present The Earth is Made of Glass.
3: Standard or resistor type spark plugs, Autolite stay full batteries, and Autolite original service parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night.
0: This is the CBS Radio Network. American radio drama limped on for another nine years with a shrinking audience, and as William N. Robeson mentions here, shrinking budgets.
6: Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear uh, did not create suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the uh, uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, uh, money for cast, money for orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, to give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians.
7: Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater
5: of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Among the great classics of radio drama... None is more memorable than Three Skeleton Key, although few who have heard it would remember it by that title. To them, it is simply that story about the rats, and that it is, an unforgettable experience in horror. We repeat it now because we can't help ourselves. We like to scare as well as you like to be scared. Listen. Listen, then, as Vincent Price stars in Three Skeleton Key... Which begins in just a moment. And now, Three Skeleton Key, starring
7: Vincent Price. A tale well calculated to keep you in
4: suspense.
12: Try and picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray, green, scum-dappled, warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish. Great violet schools of Portuguese man-of-war and, yes, sharks, the big ones, 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light is a watertight bronze door. And in you go and... Up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom is uh, the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom is the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room is the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room is the light. It imposes on the actor the necessity to create everything to create the sets, to create the costumes, to create the expressions, to create everything. And I think one of the great drawbacks of television is that so much of it is just sort of visualized radio shows where they ought to really write television shows. But it wasn't a bad life, especially at night when the others were snoring in their sacks two levels down. Usually there was nothing to see across the starlit water. Most ships knew better than to come close to three-skeleton key. But one night, gazing out across the phosphorescent comas, I I noticed something show for a second in the revolving light. Something far off. A three-master, a big one, about half a mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Larry! Louie! What is it? Ship headed for the east. We'll be right out. I had the glasses out now. I, I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. But why didn't she turn? Every time our light turned, it hit her with the glare of day. A ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Oh, the squareheads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest, August. Huh? Ah, I know. I know what it is. The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. She is derelict. That's it.
7: Derelict? Abandoned. Crew left her for some reason or other, but instead of sinking, she's
12: gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. Beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship this like that? Impossible! Absolutely impossible! What? Here, take my glasses.
1: They're stronger than yours. yours. All right.
12: What is it, you? Rose in my. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating, and on the masts and yards were hundreds, no thousands, no meat. I don't know an inestimable number of tremendous rats. The young fellow who wrote it, I challenged him to write it. He was sort of trying to get into movies, and his name was James Poe, and he's since won about five Academy Awards, and um, he couldn't really get started, he couldn't get off the ground. He and his wife were great friends of ours, and I said, why don't you write me a radio show? He said, I don't know how to write for radio. And I said, what do you mean you don't know how to write for radio? You You're right. You create visual effects, you do, you know. So he searched around, he found this short story and he adapted it to radio. And it really made his reputation, this story, because it became one of the great, really one of the great radio shows oh, ever I'd done. i a yeah. match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us,
13: all about us,
12: watching, waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting, all waiting. And then the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. and then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows, to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but... I was afraid. What if what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay, grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off, I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. Auguste, insane asylum. He never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Uh. Oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Still think radio is probably the greatest entertainment medium ever invented. It made the audience work. And I think television audiences don't have to work, and that's why they fall asleep half of the time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I really love it. And I I really think that the commercial people, you know, whoever they are who say whether we work or don't work, are making a big mistake. California, where you drive enormous distances, I have that radio on all the time. And I'd like to hear something good. I really love it. When we finally did the last suspense show in Hollywood... And it was all the people that you know who've been on every show you've ever heard from Hollywood in the old days. And we were all sitting around, and finally Virginia Gregg, who was one of the great ladies of radio, and she looked around and she said, Isn't it awful? She said, Isn't it awful? She said, Oh God, if only television was going out and radio was coming in. <laughs> and it is true, too. We all felt that. <laughs>
7: You've been listening to Devil Stone, starring Christopher Carey and Neil Fitzgerald, and written especially for suspense by Jonathan Bundy.
0: This is the closing to the final episode of Suspense. It's called Devil Stone. It aired on September 30th, 1962. By that time, Hollywood had ceased producing any radio shows, and drama for the last productions all moved to New York. Devilstone, though, was not only the last suspense show. It was the last radio program to air during the golden age of radio. This production brought the American radio drama, as it was then known, to a close. This
1: is Stuart Met speaking.
7: Every weekday evening, Chris Schenkel is anchorman for a globe-girdling roundup of first-hand reports on sports activities everywhere. Make this your address for worldwide sports every weeknight. He who laughs oftenest hears Arthur Godfrey time weekdays on the CBS radio network. From
0: there on out, all radio programming would basically consist of talk or music. Last January, I spoke with Radio Hall of Famer Chuck Shaden about the close of the American radio drama. Chuck was born in 1934 and grew up during the transition from radio to television.
14: When television came on the scene, everybody wanted to be involved with television. The people out there in radio land were excited to look at television and they thought they were gonna be able to see all these people they had seen in their imaginations on radio and when some of those folks got to television, they were a little disappointed because they didn't really look too much like the way they thought they were going to look. And in many cases, they didn't sound the same because they were different actors. But primarily, the sponsors wanted to move to television because of its ever-growing audience and the ability to show the product. And the networks, which moved from radio into television, found that it was very expensive to do that. So they were draining the resources from radio to support their entrance into television. And as the audience was shifting, the numbers of people listening to radio were going down and the numbers of people watching television were, were moving forward. And the uh, the owners of the television slash radio networks
0: felt it was
14: much easier. We had We weren't gonna let go of radio, they said, but they weren't gonna pay for all the production that was involved with uh, live comedy shows with big talent, dramatic programs and all of that sort of thing. And so they said, we can get away a lot cheaper by having a four-hour block of some guy playing records. And consequently, eventually, the radio dramas and the original comedies and all of that left the radio waves and were replaced on, on television. And that's basically what killed it. And I feel that those of us who were there during that period of transition, we in effect let radio down because we were as fascinating with with television just as much as people were fascinated with radio when it came in on the scene and they previously had been listening to recordings and had a piano in their living room, which they didn't use anymore.
0: I really appreciated the in-depth information we can find on Suspense thanks to interviews done while these people involved in the golden age of radio were still alive and also because of the shows available. It's wonderful that digital audio has helped save so many of these radio dramas. The complete show run for Suspense was June 17, 1942 to September 30, 1962. That's 20 years with only a 6-month gap between 60 and 61. Over 900 of the 945 episodes survive, many in high quality. The production value for these shows between say December of 43 and June of 54 was amongst the highest in radio. CBS featured suspense in a primetime slot for over a decade. These shows offer the very best scripts starring the very best actors and actresses. They're definitely worth a listen, especially with Halloween coming up. And you can find the complete series through the Old Time Radio Researchers Library at otrlibrary.org. I think, as Vincent Price argued, that people like to work when being entertained. Take a show like Game of Thrones. Sure, it's television, but the plot twists and turns keep audiences guessing and using their imagination. Good audio drama does the same thing. The shows, by the way, featured in today's episodes are Sorry, Wrong Number, which was broadcast August 21st, 1943 and starred Agnes Moorhead. The House in Cypress Canyon, that was originally broadcast December 5th, 1946 and starred Robert Taylor. On a Country Road, which was broadcast November 16, 1950 and starred Cary Grant. By the way, both of those shows, House in Cypress Canyon and On a Country Road, featured Kathy Lewis as the female lead. Finally, Three Skeleton Key was broadcast on October 19th, 1958, and starred Vincent Price. Price, by the way, kept radio acting long past his counterparts in Hollywood did because he loved radio so much that he had it written into his contracts with different motion picture houses to allow him to do as much radio as he wanted to stay In audio shape, basically. And speaking of guys like Vincent Price, there were and are several people who interviewed the stars from the Golden Age of Radio during the 1970s and 80s after the radio days were over. Chuck Shaden, whom you heard at the end of this episode, interviewed hundreds of old-time radio stars. His interviews can be found at speakingofradio.com. John Dunning, who wrote the Encyclopedia of Old-Time Radio, had a show in the 1980s on Denver Radio where he played OTR shows and interviewed former stars. Finally, a special thank you to the late Ed Corcoran and Dick Bertel, who's still alive, Dick Bertel, for their work on WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio during the 1970s, interviewing all of these former stars. In today's episode, they were responsible for interviewing Bill Spear and June Havoc, Hans Conried, Vincent Price, Elliot Lewis, and Howard Duff. You can find all of their surviving WTIC Golden Age of Radio episodes in the archives of the Old Time Radio Researchers Library, again at otrlibrary.org. As I mentioned on the open, you can find Breaking Walls on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn by searching for the same, and you can follow us on SoundCloud at The Wallbreakers. The Wallbreakers' Unity t-shirt line is available at jamesthewallbreaker.com shop. Today's special intro soundscape featured the Pavane, a procession dance first common in 16th century Renaissance Venice. Our outro music will be courtesy of the late Bernard Herrmann. The next time you hear my voice will be October 15th with Breaking Walls episode 67. Be on the lookout for more information on this episode in the coming week. And as you can tell, obviously, October has arrived and brought with it, at least here in New York, autumn weather. In 30 days, children will dress up in their favorite outfits and go trick-or-treating. I hope all of us adults can remember to take our costumes off and be ourselves. Facing our deep-rooted fears unlocks a new sense of gratitude. If there's anything at all that I can do to help you do this, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can find me at James at thewallbreakers.com I hope that as you listen to this today you are well and I hope that you remember to keep getting out there and keep breaking those walls my name is James Scully this has been Breaking Walls episode number 66 and until next time I'll catch you on the flip side thank you very much
5: Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear John Dietz was our guest director this evening Tonight's radio drama was written by Lucille Fletcher. The original score was by Bernard Herrmann. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.